There aren't a lot of the Psalms that tell us the context in which they're written. Last week we looked at Psalm 51 and it is one of the Psalms that tells us why uh, the author pens it. And this week is one of the other Psalms that tells us the context in which uh, this Psalm is written and what, what motivates it being written. It says in the introduction for the choir director, a Psalm of David, regarding the time Doeg the Edomite said to Saul, David has gone to see Ahimelech. Now, that sounds pretty innocuous. It seems a little strange that you would write a whole psalm about David going to visit Ahimelech. And if you read the psalm, you think that must have been a pretty interesting visit. But the truth of the matter is there is the background to that story that goes back to 1 Samuel 21, 22, and even before that. In the earlier part of um, 1 Samuel, David comes into the... uh, the home of Saul, living in the palace, eating in the palace, he sort of becomes Saul's best guy. Until Saul's heart begins to turn away from God, and he becomes quite paranoid, and maybe for good reason, because David has now been anointed Saul's successor. And Saul is doing everything he can to try to prevent that from happening, including trying to pin David to the wall a couple of times with a spear. David gets the picture. I think I'm going to go somewhere else to spend my time. And he takes off with a band of uh, maybe a few hundred soldiers and men and renegades. And they live in caves and in the mountains and doing everything they can to evade the army of Saul. And uh, they've been out for just a little while. This conflict has not yet come to its full conclusion. And a lot of people in the kingdom don't know that this division has taken place. And David and his men are hungry, and he goes to the town of Nob, to the temple, and he says, uh, I, I, uh, I'd like to, uh, do you have anything to eat? And Ahimelech is the priest there where they worship in Nob. And he says, the only bread I have is basically what we would say, the communion bread. It's bread that's set aside for the worship. And he says, I, I think this is a legitimate reason to use it. So he gives David the bread. And as David is leaving, he notices that Doeg the Edomite is standing there watching all of this take place. He knows Doeg because Doeg is the chief shepherd in, of Saul. And they've had interactions, I'm sure, through the years that David has been connected to the, to the home and palace of Saul. And he sees him and he thinks to himself, that's not good. But he doesn't do anything about it. You know, he's in a hurry, he's hungry, he's got guys waiting for him. He later says, I knew that was a mistake to just walk past him. Because what ends up happening in the next section is Saul is, is ranting and raving about how all of his officers and the people have turned against him. Even his own son, Jonathan, has made a, a pact with David to protect David. And he says to them, what is wrong with you people? Does no one here care about me? Does no one care that I'm the king? And... Doeg says, well, I've got some information about David. He says, what do you got? He says, well, I, I saw David go get some bread from Ahimelech, the priest, and Nob. And Saul is furious. He says, go get him. So he grabs the priest. They drag him back. And he says, why would you give my enemy bread? And Ahimelech is clueless. Your enemy? I thought you and David were like this. Not anymore. He says, well, I didn't know. He said, well, that's too bad. And he turns to the soldiers, and Saul says, kill him. And the soldiers go, I don't think so. That's the priest of God, of Yahweh. We're not killing him. Doeg steps forward and says, I'll do it. 
and he kills him. And he kills the 85 other priests that are associated with that place of worship. And then he goes to the town of Nob and he slaughters everybody. And he comes back and says to Saul, it's taken care of. We're good. And somewhere along the line, when David hears what has happened, of course he feels a certain element of guilt because he didn't do anything in that moment when he could have, but he didn't know. But he also feels this overwhelming sense of anger and frustration because you get a feeling from the psalm that Doeg is boasting about what he's done, how great he is, what a great warrior he is. And he's almost like he's saying, you guys think David is so great? Look what happens to the people who are friends of David. Who won this battle? And somewhere along the line, in response to all of this, David pens this psalm. And if you put the psalm in a nutshell, I think it would say something like this. In the face of evil and injustice, trust that God is good. Now, you would expect the Bible to say that, right? I mean, if you've been around the church, that's what the Bible says over and over again. Trust that God is good. Trust that God is good. And we know that. But the reason we need to read this psalm and think about it is because we all struggle to do it. Especially in these times when evil and injustice is so prevalent and so painful. And we get that because we live in a world that's filled with injustice and evil. We don't even have to go very far. We don't have to look hard at all. I don't know how you responded, but it was so tragic of the shooting of the photographer and the reporter. Innocent people just doing their job. You think about the, the refugees who were found dead in the back of a pickup truck, suffocated. The boat that capsized with other refugees, 100 and some, 120 some people died. War and violence and, and innocent people dealing with terrorism and persecution. I think about the, even the church in Nigeria and half a million refugees displaced because of the violence there. And that's just one country among many. We see it over and over and over again. And, and that is when we get into human trafficking and abuse. And all the ways in which evil is at work in our world. And injustice is at work in our world. And, and even we've experienced little bits and pieces of it ourselves. When people hurt us. And lie about us. And do damage to us. Our reputations. And in those moments, we get so frustrated and burdened. And we look around the world and we think, what is going on here? What do we do about it? And something in us, the temptation in us, is to say, if I just close myself off from it, if I just ignore it, then I won't feel bad about it. And there is a tendency to do that. I won't watch the news. I won't read the internet. I don't, I don't want to get into those conversations because it's just too painful. It's just too much. And there is a sense in which that is, that is a, a, a knee-jerk reaction, a natural response. And I think the reason we may do that is because to face evil head-on is painful. 
to allow the evil and injustice of the world to get a hold of us is difficult. And it tears at our hearts and it, and it rips the fabric of our emotions. And, and we don't know what to do about it. But the answer is not denial. As I've said before, denial is not a spiritual discipline. There is nothing about trusting God that starts with denial. We don't trust God because, well, we just ignore all the bad stuff and then it's easy to trust God. We look the bad stuff straight in the face and say, in spite of that, I trust that God is good. It's hard to do that. One of the struggles we have with with facing evil and injustice is that it causes us to get really angry. And, And in a sense, it should. We ought to be angry about evil and injustice. But we need to be careful. I think this psalm is addressing two problems. The first one is the problem of people who commit evil. The people who perpetrate injustice. And it's a warning to them to understand that, as he says in verse 1, God's justice goes on forever and ever. A day of reckoning is coming. So don't think you can just get away with evil. I suspect that for most of us, despite our imperfections, for most of us, maybe the greater struggle is the second part of what the psalm is addressing, and that is how we respond to the evil and injustice in the world. And I think the warning for us is just as we can get so enamored with what we want in this world that we trample people and walk over people and commit all kinds of of acts that in our sane moments we couldn't imagine ourselves doing. Just as that is a temptation, the other side of it is also a temptation that when we get so angry about evil that vengeance can rise up in our hearts and out of that vengeance can easily come bitterness. And there is a fine line between being angry about evil and injustice and it leading us to good and being angry about evil and injustice and it leading us down the wrong path. One of the ways in which we know we're heading down the wrong path is when we we want to combat evil by quite frankly, doing evil. That we feel like if if this is the strategy of evil, the only way to defeat it is to use the same strategy. And the church has an unfortunate history of making that decision so that when people overtly reject the faith, there have been times in in the history of the church where those people have been persecuted and even their lives taken from them. We tend not to do that now. We vilify people. We post things on the internet. We, we, you know, we get upset and angry and it leads us to treat people in a way that is not like Christ. And we justify that because we're right and they're not. And we're on the side of good and they're on the side of evil. And so if you're on the side of good, anything goes. You can do what you want to defeat evil. But that's not how the kingdom works. Jesus comes and addresses evil not by fighting and crushing his enemies, but by going to a cross. And 
And the scriptures tell us again and again that the, the way to overcome evil is love. And the pathway to that love is trusting God. Trusting that God is good and merciful. That God will, will do what needs to be done. We are called to trust that he is who he says he is. That he does what he says he does. That he carries out his promises. Not from a spirit of wrath and vengeance, but from a spirit of mercy that leads to justice. The problem is God doesn't always do that the way we want him to. He doesn't always do things in the timing and, 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 and using the solutions that we think are right. We get upset, we get, we get frustrated, and, and we're saying, God, you've got to do something about this now. I was thinking about that this week. We were dealing with a, uh, a federal agency with some issues. And, and, of course, anytime you start talking about we have to deal with a federal agency, you know there's going to be pain involved in it. And there's going to be struggle and problems. And we were dealing with that and trying to figure it out and trying, I mean, look at this and thinking, this is not that complicated. It's common sense. But of course, again, common sense and federal government tend to not go together. Bureaucracy. And you could put that at a lot of levels, but of, of different things. But, you know, we're just thinking, this, how hard can this be? Why can't we get this done? Why does it have to be so complicated? And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And I don't even want to tell you the things that were going through my mind about God. I hope you do this to these people who are making this happen to us. I hope you have some places reserved for them. And, I realize, and then I read Psalm 52 and I'm thinking, yikes, I can't do that. I've got to check my attitude. And I'm thinking, God, you, why aren't you acting? And that's just a small little thing compared to so much that's going on in the world. And I don't know exactly why God doesn't respond the way we think he should. He doesn't respond as quickly as we want or in the way that he wants. I mean, there are, I have some ideas about it, but I wonder if one of those things, one of the reasons is because if God always responded immediately to every problem, then we wouldn't feel the need to be involved at all. We'd have no reason to feel compassion to people in need. We'd have no reason to invest ourselves in places of pain and hurt. And because, but because God doesn't get involved immediately like we want, more often than not, that opens the door for us to say, what can I do? How can I be a channel of God's healing in this situation? How, what can I do to help curb evil that's going on? What can I do to sacrifice, to get involved so that I relieve some of the pain and the struggle and the pressure and the hurt that this person or these people are experiencing. And the more of those kinds of things we do, the more our heart is sensitive to the Spirit of God. And the more our hearts are sensitive to the Spirit of God, the more we become like Christ, which is the goal. And we are filled with the spirit of compassion and love and grace and involvement and sacrifice in the spirit of Jesus. Maybe that's one reason why God waits. But ultimately, we don't know the reason always. 
But whatever the reason may or may not be, we do know we are continually called to believe that despite what we think and despite what we feel and despite what we see, God is at work because we believe God is good and we're going to trust him. We believe that ultimately God is going to set everything straight. Ultimately, God is going to to reveal his justice in the way that he knows is right. But I'm hoping and praying that as God reveals his justice, there is a whole lot of mercy. Or I don't know about you, but I'm going to be in trouble. And I'm asking God to give me the ability to be to be angry like Jesus about injustice and evil, but not to be filled with bitterness and vengeance and hatred. To believe that, that I don't have to feel that way because God is good and God is in control and he knows what he's doing and I can trust him. And instead of feeling like I'm not sure God knows what he's doing, I better step in and take care of this. I work and invest and help and trust God. I wonder if that's what David means when in verse 8 he says, I'm like an olive tree that flourishes. I got to be honest, it, it seems an abrupt change that he's making. He's talking all about, you know, the evil and what's going to happen to them and, and the people who who are doing good are going to be rejoicing and the people who are doing evil are not going to be rejoicing. And then he says, but I'm like an olive tree that flourishes in the soil. It makes me wonder if David isn't simply talking about how an olive tree is, is so valuable, particularly in the ancient cultures, the, the food, as food, as oil to light lamps and to dispel the darkness and even use as for medicinal purposes. It, it is so valuable and so positive and so good in all of their lives. But I also think he's contrasting what he says in verse 5, that when he's talking about those who do evil, who are committed to evil, they're going, to be, they're going to be ripped up like roots out of the soil because... They are committed to just gratifying themselves and evil. And David is like an olive tree that's firmly planted in the soil. Who produces fruit to heal people in need. And how can David be confident to know I'm like an olive tree? Because he knows that in his heart, despite his many imperfections, what he wants in his heart is to trust God. And that's what God is asking from us. Ultimately, God is going to to set things straight. N.T. Wright talks about God putting things right. He says the Psalms don't give us an answer to the problem of evil. But instead, the Psalms remind us again and again that God is renewing and restoring his creation. And the day is coming when we will see that in all of its fullness and glory. And God will be especially 
clear to right the wrongs that human beings do to each other. And and he will be especially uh, healing to those who are weak and defenseless and vulnerable. The people who tend to get trampled on by injustice. And he will set things straight. And it's that day that gives us hope. It's that day that allows us to wait and to trust even when we don't see it like we'd want to. Sometimes we ask the question, you know, what is God doing about evil? What is God doing about injustice? And the answer really is staring us in the face at this table. Because when we come to this table, we are, we are engaging ourselves anew with the cross. As, as we take the bread and, and the cup, the words are spoken, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. What does God do about evil? He sends his son to the cross. And Jesus goes to the cross willingly and lovingly to be the final, ultimate answer to evil. And we may not see it right now. And we may not understand it all right now. But can we trust? Can we believe? And it's not a trusting that, God, I'll trust you when you take care of this problem. God, I'll trust you if you deal with this evil. It's simply, God, I will trust you. I will trust you when things are like I hope they would be and when they're not. I will trust you when it feels like evil has the upper hand and when it doesn't. I will trust you when I can't see you at work just as I will trust you when I can. For I believe with David that you, O Lord, are good and merciful and just. This is the calling upon us. It is that trust and that hope that gives us all that we need to be influences for truth and peace and justice and love in this world that desperately needs it. So what are we going to do? Hear God's call through David. I'll trust you. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your mercy at work in us and in this world. And you know how we sometimes wrestle to see it, to believe it, to trust. Give us grace to trust you more. Father, as we prepare to to come to this table, we pray that your blessing will be poured out upon the bread and the cup. We pray, Father, that, that your Holy Spirit will speak into our souls as we eat and drink, that we might experience you anew. 
Father, thank you for your grace to us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.